0: So, good morning, church. Good morning. You guys look like you're doing A-OK. Yeah. You know, Mark mentioned that big orange globe that's in the sky that I, I, I tell you, it was like freaking me out just a little bit. I, I called the National Observatory and I said, look, there's this orange ball in the sky that I haven't seen in a while. I don't know what's going on. And they said, so it's just the sun. You live in a really damp, dark part of the world. So, <laughs> it's only the sun, folks. I, it's good to see the sunshine, so. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. We're going to walk through, continue to walk through our series on Ephesians, and uh, I'm going to do something that I don't ordinarily do. Uh, uh, Before we get into it, I'm going to read you the the entire text of what we're going to talk about first, because I want you to hear it all, all all at one time, and there's going to be some things I want you to get out of this, some things right up front. Now, we're going to talk about a lot of things a lot of things. We're going to take it, after we walk through it here and kind of read what Paul has said to this church, we're going to actually break it down, probably somewhat verse by verse, somewhat word by word, somewhat letter by letter, and it should only take about, I'm guessing, maybe three hours, maybe. So, yeah, thank you, Mark. So, but the three things, and I want you to hear this, and you'll hear these themes as we walk through all of these verses. I. First thing is, I want you to understand that Paul is wanting these people to understand that they need to know God better, and we're going to talk a lot about that. The second thing I want you to hear, and you'll hear it and we'll talk about that, it'll be a main theme, is the hope to which you are called. That hope is going to be a big piece. That is a huge piece. And then I want you to hear the power, the power that God has and it's going to be power un, quite unlike what we know about power today. So let's just walk through these verses, and uh, we'll go from there. Paul says, and this is Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Paul says, for this reason, and he's talking about all of the things that he said prior to this. So all, the, all those things that you guys have heard over the last three weeks. Pa- Paul says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord, in the Lord Je- Jesus, Lord Jesus In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, Paul wants you to understand what that is, that power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So today we're going to walk through this And if you haven't noticed, the book of Ephesians is noticeably different from some of Paul's other letters to to different churches. Most of Paul's letters, like uh, Corinthians, Philippians, and Galatians, are pretty specific. So they seem to deal with specific issues that a specific church has, or addressing a need that was in that church. Ephesians is a little different. In Ephesians, Paul doesn't seem to be dealing with specific issues in a church. In fact, there are many scholars who believe that the letter was actually written, and you've heard both uh, Nathan and Dwayne talk about this, but the letter was written to a whole group of churches in in, in that region, with Ephesus being the primary uh, church that he was writing to at that time. Regardless of all that, It's pretty certain that the letter would have been read in many groups and gatherings of Jesus followers throughout the area. It has instruction in it that all believers in that day would have benefited from. and In fact, the letter letter to Ephesians is so rich with instruction that it is still being read, still being read today in modern churches some 2,000 years later like this church. I bring this up because this letter is relevant to us today. It is, uh, we've heard Nathan talk about the fact that none of the scripture was written to us, but all of it was most certainly written for us. So I want to take just a few minutes and give you a quick recap of the last three weeks. So over the last three weeks, Nathan and Dwayne have given us the breakdown of the first 14 14 verses of chapter 1. Those first 14 verses are a beautiful, beautiful picture that Paul has painted with his words. It's written like a poem. it, It gives us some details of the blessings and privileges that we have when we realize that through Jesus, we have been adopted into the family of the God of the universe. That's an amazing piece to this. If we don't recognize that, we've missed a big piece. So Paul certainly wants us to know that. And Nathan and Dwayne did a great job of bringing that out. Paul tells us that it was the love of God, according to his will, that we have been given grace. It was freely bestowed on us in and through Christ. And it brought us the redemption that we have, the forgiveness of our sins, through the blood of Jesus. So I'm still on, the, still on the recap now. So we've been given wisdom and insight into the mystery, Paul says, of the will of God through Christ. Paul goes on to say that God's purpose and will is that according to his good pleasure, and these guys brought this out very well, which was in Christ, that at the right time, Jesus would bring to all things unity in heaven and on earth under Jesus. Paul tells these folks something that would have been completely astonishing to them. He says to all of those that were reading or hearing this letter, that when they chose to believe this message of truth, which was the gospel of their salvation, Paul tells them that they're a part of this plan, a part of this cosmic plan that God has to bring a family in. Not just the Jews, he says the entire world. Church, I have some amazing, amazing good news for you. Are you aware that when you believed and you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, are you aware that you were guaranteed an inheritance that you would also become, not just guaranteed an inheritance, you would become an inheritance? Now, I'm going to explain that here, here in just a little bit. Through Jesus, you belong to God, to the praise of his glory. We should all say, thank you, Lord, amen, amen, thank you. We're a part of God's plan. So before we dive into this, I want to just take just a minute to, to finish up this recap. So both Nathan and Dwayne have given us a good understanding of what life was like in the city of Ephesus. The reason for my additional informa- information here is just to give you a reminder of what this city was about, as well as the idea of the scope of this city, and some of the things that a group of Christians would have had to deal with in their world at that time. So, I'll tell you that Ephesus, if you read about cities in the scripture, Ephesus was not how we would picture an ancient city in the first first century. It was a large city multi-ethnic center of trade. It was a center of commerce and culture. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. It had the third largest population of all of the Greco-Roman cities. Only Rome and Alexandria had a larger population. There, now listen to this. There was a medical, a medical college, there were they had renowned doctors a large public library, this was all in Ephesus, as well as numerous shrines and statues, and they, they had an underground sewer system and an indoor amphitheater that seated about 18,000 people. So this wasn't just some small, dusty town with dirt streets and a few, and a few camels tied up here and there. This was a big city. So both Nathan and Dwayne talked about one of the most important, prominent features of the city of Ephesus, and it was because it was the sacred home of Artemis. Artemis, the Greek goddess of the moon, protector of nature and animals, (laughs) the goddess of fertility, the great perpetual virgin mother of heaven. These are all descriptions that they gave to this pagan goddess, Statues of Artemis were everywhere. The temple of Artemis was one of the, and these guys both brought this out. I thought it was so cool. I'm going to say it again. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The city was heavily influenced by the occult, magic, spirit powers. They were all about that. It was a mecca for all types of belief in multiple gods. Now, I want you to hear what this city was known for as it was a cultural Mecca. Truth in in that city was thought of as nothing more than a preference. So something could be true for you, but not true for me. Tolerance and acceptance were promoted. What was not tolerated or accepted was that if you believed that your God was the only God. That was not tolerated or accepted. That was a huge problem for these uh, people who believed that Jesus had come and saved them from their sins. This city could describe a lot of the cities in our world today. It sounds like they could have been living in modern-day America. We're getting a glimpse, and I want you to have this picture of what it was like, of what of what these Christians in and around the city of Ephesus were dealing with. So I tell you all this so that you recognize that these folks were not living in some fairy tale land, a land where everyone had accepted God and all the surroundings were honoring to him. It was not the case. It was not the case. As, as a matter of fact, Christians in that area were an extreme minority. So Paul now goes into this incredible prayer that he has been praying for these Christians in and around Ephesus. This prayer is incredible for several reasons. First, there's something that Paul doesn't mention in this prayer. And and I'm going to tell you what that is right up front because it's glaringly, glaringly obvious. And Paul actually doesn't mention this in many of his prayers. Paul doesn't mention the circumstances that they're in. All the things I just told you about, Paul doesn't bring that up and say, wow, I recognize that you guys are in the Mecca of Artemis, a pagan goddess. He doesn't say that. Even though they lived in one of the most pagan cultures in the world at that time, Paul's prayer is unique because it doesn't mention the hardship about living among pagans. First, I want to give you a quick rundown of prayer and, and I, I want to tell you, much of what I think about prayer has been formed in my life over several years. So as most of you know, I, I, I didn't grow up in the church. I don't recall ever anyone ever teaching me how to pray when I was a child. We, we didn't pray. Or even when I was a teenager, it, it just didn't, it didn't happen. Prayer seemed very strange to me, likely because I didn't pray. Later in life, as a young adult, I I was involved with a church, but prayer was still a difficult subject. And I had heard people talk about older folks in the church who were prayer warriors, and I was never really sure what that meant. Now, I get the concept of someone who will literally stay in prayer until they believe that God has heard and answered that prayer. I get that. I think I have some understanding of it now, but I will tell you that this prayer that Paul prayed for these, for these Christians in and around Ephesus has given me some new and somewhat different insight into prayer. It's, it, it, has, it has changed the way that I pray. Now, this, the, this is not new. This is not new, but it is certainly a different view of how we might pray and what we should be praying for. So, Paul seems to see a new opportunity To pray for these these people in Ephesus. So let's dive into this prayer. Paul's prayer has a lot of words and phrases that sound very biblical and uh, uh, phrases that sound, uh, you hear the religiosity in it, and sometimes it's easy when you hear that to just put your mind in neutral and roll through the words on the page or the screen. I want to encourage you not to do that. This is an important prayer that I believe will help you. So we're going to start at verse 15. And Paul says, for this reason, and we know all of what those reasons were, what Nathan and Dwayne talked about over the last uh, three weeks, ever since I heard about your faith in in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. So let's stop here for just a minute. We need to unpack this just a bit. So, do you know where Paul's at when he's writing this? Prison. He, he, he's in prison. And he's hearing about the lives of these Christians in this church at Ephesus and the surrounding area. And now, Paul spent about, about two, maybe three years or so in Ephesus helping to start these first groups of followers of Christ, not only in Ephesus, but also in those other towns that were around that area. The reports that Paul is hearing about these people seem to be really good. They seem to be doing quite well. And Paul says that these good results, these good, these good reports that he's getting are prompting him to thank God for them. We should thank God for those people that are doing well, promoting what God is promoting. And he, but, but, he's going to, but he's also prompting him to keep praying for them have you ever been prompted to pray for someone who's doing great and seems to be doing all the right things? I I hope you have. I don't know that I I do a whole lot of that. <laughs> so let me ask you, what prompts you to pray for your family, your children, your brothers, your brothers and sisters in the Lord? What is the reason for most of our prayers? It's probably When someone is in a crisis, right? Is there's many times, and and don't get me wrong, you should pray for them when they're in that. It's probably when things are not going well, and chaos is breaking loose in their world. It's when sickness or calamity has rocked their world. It's when jobs are lost. It's it's when marriages fall apart. It's when loved ones pass away. That's most of the time that we feel prompted to pray. Don't misunderstand. We should be praying in all those circumstances. We absolutely should. I can tell you that, that people depend heavily on the prayers of the people in this room. Do you know that? Do you know that there are people who depend on your prayers? That's an amazing insight. When you pray, don't forget, there are people that depend on that. Don't stop praying for your friends and loved ones who are in distress. However, if we're not careful, prayer can just become a form of crisis management. Paul turns prayer upside down here. It's really, it's really, really amazing. He prays for this people when they are doing well if you think about the reasons we pray, it's generally about a crisis. Paul is hearing these good reports about how they're doing, and he notes in verse 15 that he is hearing something else about them. He's hearing about their faith in the Lord Jesus. And then he says, and their love for all of God's people. So the first thing that Paul mentions here is their faith. Now, we can go into the Scripture and we can go into Hebrews 11.1 1, and we know that faith, according to that, is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And this passage tells us that the central feature of faith is confidence or trust. Faith is trust. And to use a, a term, I'm going to steal one, faith is trust and that is all. It's about putting all your allegiance, everything you are, trusting your very life to Christ. That's faith. It, now, it starts in your brain. Do you know that? Do you know you have to think about things sometimes before you actually do it? You got to think about it. So, it starts in your brain, but it, is, but that, it, it shouldn't end there. If it does, it's not faith. It, but it is lived out in actions. In this case, one of the actions that these people were doing that they were loving God's people. They were loving each other. That may seem amazing, but it shouldn't be. <laughs> Paul was hearing these people were actually loving each other. Love, and Do you know that love in the Bible is not primarily an emotion? It's not. It's not really talked about that way in the Scripture. It's a commitment. Now, uh, hear me out on this. this you 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 may not agree with me. That's okay. It's a commitment to action is what it is, in my opinion. In our culture, love is something that just happens to us. Like, we fall in love, which can cause you real problems if you fall out of love. So, this is very different, very different from how the love is portrayed in the Scripture. Love should be... Well, let me just give you this. Love should be a commitment to act for the well-being of another person ahead of, instead of, my own well-being. Does that make sense? It's a commitment. It's action to act for the well-being of someone else over and above myself. Nonetheless, Paul keeps praying for these people, but there's a notable difference in the thrust of his prayer. So, what is he praying for? Let's jump down to verse number 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So, that sounds very biblical, doesn't it? Very uh, biblical. But what's Paul actually saying here? Is he praying That God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so they would be kind to each other? Nope. Nope. He's not. Although being kind is good, I encourage you to be kind to each other. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. Being kind is a byproduct of what Paul is praying for here. But it is not the main theme. Is he praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would? give to the poor. He's not. That is a good thing as well, and we should do it. And But it is still a byproduct of what Paul is actually praying for. Is he praying? Uh, you're going to lie. I started to take this out, but I'm not going to. Is he praying that they give more money to the church No, he's not praying that. Now, that's important. (laughs) But it is still a byproduct of what Paul is actually praying for. All these things that we've just talked about are massively important. And we're getting close, but they're all byproducts of the first thing that Paul mentions. So let's just look at verse number 17 again. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Know him better. This is quite amazing. Notice that Paul doesn't pray for their circumstances. He doesn't pray that they get out of the world of Artemis and all the pagan stuff that was going on in their world. He doesn't pray that. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray about situations or circumstances. As I've said, we absolutely should. We certainly should be. But Paul seems to be more focused on, some, on something here when he's praying. He's focused on their relationship with God. Do you see it? You, he prays that they would get that spirit of revelation to know God better. So maybe Paul believed that these followers of Jesus were not experiencing any trials or hardships. I think he probably knew that they were. Paul knew that was not the case. He had spent two or three years in that city. He knew what Ephesus was about. Paul knows that all these Christians were living in the midst of a city that was that was so immersed in the n- n- culture of the worship of Artemis that even the economics and the stability of that city were dependent on this pagan goddess. The temple of Artemis, and I think Dwayne brought this out back there a couple to three weeks ago, the Temple of Artemis was not only a shrine to her, it was the largest bank in Asia. A bank! Paul knew these people were living in, in a heavily influenced pagan culture. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all the influence of a pagan goddess, Paul's prayer is that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would know God better. Now, I want you to hear me on this. He's not saying to know more about him. It's, he's saying to know him. They would know him better. It's an important concept that needs to be stressed in our culture as well. Many times we think that knowing about God is the key. We teach our kids to know about God. but Paul says we need to know God, not just know about Him. We need to know Him better. So, Paul has this view that the closer that we are to God and the more that we get to know Him, the less that we are affected by our circumstances. He has this strange view. If you know God better, your circumstances don't matter as much it seems that Paul is praying that through God's Spirit that the Ephesians would begin to understand that whatever the circumstances are in their life, it becomes an opportunity for them to draw closer to Christ so that they may know Him better. Have you ever looked? Now, I'll tell you, I'll just ask this question to me. Have I ever looked at my circumstances? And you can apply this to you if you want to. Have I ever looked at my circumstances and say, wow, this really sucks, and I'm not really happy about the way things are going right now, but I'm going to look at this as a a way to get closer to Jesus. Ah, Man, I I, I want to say to you, I wish I could say to you, (laughs) that's always been the case for me, but it's not. I have an idea that's probably the case for you as well. Sometimes we don't look at our circumstances as an opportunity to draw closer to the Lord. Where did this come from? What, where did this idea that Paul has of knowing God, why is it so important? So, first and foremost, this idea came from none other than Jesus. In John, he's a pretty important piece of all this. In John chapter 16 and 17, Jesus is telling his disciples that they are going to experience, now I'm going to give you, we're going to Paul and Ephesians decide, just for a second, he's telling his disciples that they're going to go through some hard stuff. He is saying to them that they're going to be outcasts from the temple. They're going to be kicked out of that temple that they so love. And even worse, he tells them that there there is a time that's going to come that when everyone who kills these followers of Christ think they are doing and offering a service to God, He said, this is how things are going to go for you. Then Jesus says something even more startling. In John 16, 3, and it's not on the screen, he tells them that the reason they will cast them out of the synagogue and think that killing them is a service to God, this is what he says, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Wait, wait, Wait a minute. These things they're going to do because they don't know Christ and they don't know God? This brings a different view of knowing God. Jesus goes on to tell them that that he's going away, but he is going to send the Holy Spirit, the helper to them. Jesus is praying to the Father in what scholars call the high priestly prayer. And he's acknowledging that God has given him authority over all flesh. I want you to remember that term because we're going to talk about that as well, a lot about that. And also, the power to give eternal life. Do you know that Jesus has the power to give eternal life? Do you know that? Then Jesus describes in John 17, 3 about this eternal life. Listen to what he says. This was startling. He says, this is eternal life Okay, he's going to describe what eternal life is, that they may. He and he's praying to God. He's praying to his Father. This is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. Folks, knowing God is more than just good advice. It's better than just good advice. It's more than just knowing about God. I I gotta. I, you, you're going to have to bear with me for just a minute because I, I need to geek out on this, that John 17, 3 for just a second. Can, can you allow me to do that? When, when Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, the, this Greek word for eternal is a word called ionos. And it doesn't matter if you can say it or pronounce it or anything, but it, it, it does help that you know what it means. This word means perpetual unending. So eternal means a perpetual or unending. It, but it isn't just that. It isn't just a duration of life. It also, in the Greek, it references a quality of life, a quality of life. There are many places where Christ references eternal life in his present tense. So wait a minute, I thought you got eternal life after you died, Lord. What's going on here? According to this, it would seem like that we begin our journey into eternal life when we put our faith in Christ. So, if you're a believer in Christ, eternal life begins with Jesus and then continues after our physical death. Do you see that? It's not just about the duration. It's about the quality of life, and Jesus used that in the present tense. You can look it up. It, you, you can see this stuff. And then I'm going to do one more, and I'll, I'll move on. The Greek word that, that he uses to know in, in John 17, 3 is ginosko. This word means to know. That's pretty easy, right? Even I can get that, but it's a different kind of knowing. It's a knowing that comes from a personal experience or a first-hand acquaintance, that kind of knowing. So, let me give you an example. Does everyone in here know who Elon Musk is? Everybody know who Elon Musk is? You you probably have heard of him. Uh, Yes, you've heard of him. Uh, You may know the name. People know his name. You may know things about him. For example, he's the owner of Tesla, SpaceX, numerous other ventures you may know that he's currently the wealthiest man on the planet, but do you know him? You don't know him. Do you know him through, through a personal experience? Is he a firsthand acquaintance of yours? If he is, I want to talk to you. Do you see the difference in knowing about someone and knowing someone? Do you see that difference? It's a, it's a drastic, a drastic difference. The importance of knowing God, not just knowing about him, is immense. No wonder Paul puts such an emphasis on it. So back to Paul's prayer. This prayer is rich in meaning. It, it is, Paul is telling these Gentile followers of Christ that he is praying that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened so that they may understand the hope to which he has called them to. So look at what he says in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. This is going to be fun. First, I'll tell you that the understanding of this verse has been hotly debated. You say, well, Barney, that's pretty straightforward. Why would scholars debate that verse? and it's been that way for many years, it concerns Paul's statement about the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And I'm going to quickly give you just the two schools of thought on it, and and then we'll move on. Some believe that Paul is describing the idea that we are an inheritance to God. On the other side, there are those that believe that Paul is describing the fact that once we put our faith in Christ, we have an inheritance from God. Now, both concepts are found in Scripture. However, I will tell you that it is my opinion that this is describing the inheritance that we are to God. Do you, have you ever thought about yourself as being an inheritance to God, that God would want you to be His, His inheritance? Have you ever thought about yourself that way? I don't know that I have. If you read this in the right context, you see that the, you see the value that God places on His people. People have said, God doesn't need anything. Why would He be concerned about us being an inheritance to Him? He doesn't need anything. I would simply point you to the cross. God loved His creation so much that He would take their sins and place them on on to Jesus. He desires for you to be an inheritance to him. This is how much God loves you. This is definitely language that you probably don't use every day to describe your walk with Christ, but I hope you will. The fact that Paul prays that these folks would recognize their standing with God tells me that this recognition of who God is and what Jesus has done for them isn't something that they inherently understood. They didn't just get it right off the bat. So Paul's praying that they get it, and I'm praying that we get it. As I look at this, I really believe that we are not that much different in our world today than these folks were as it relates to how we see ourselves in God's eyes. I don't think we're much different than that. Without a supernatural revelation, we, like the Ephesians, can be stuck in this thought that we need to earn God's love. You may think that you have to prove to God that you are worthy of His love. Now, this is a condition that I can speak to personally I spent many years not, not believing that God would or could love me, and then trying to figure out why God even would. Why would He? It didn't make any sense to me for years and years. I could not wrap my head around the verses in, Roman five, in Romans 5 that talks about the love of God that would cause Christ to to die for us when we were blatant sinners, I could not wrap my head around that. I couldn't get there. I, I was never taught that God really loved you. Sometimes, that, if you're living in that world and you don't know if God loves you or not, it, can cause, it caused me to resort to spending all of our time and energy trying to do enough good things to make God love us. You're left trying to prove your worth to God. This can lead to <laughs> terrible things, like trying to earn your salvation. This is a this is a, this is a useless quest because you soon realize that you cannot do enough good to coerce God into loving you. Then, in some cases, mine was one of those. It causes us to do something that takes you down an even worse path, it causes us, and this is what I did, to deny the truth and say, this can't be true. This cannot be true. This is a dangerous place to be because if that isn't true, neither is anything else in the Word of God. This leaves you with the idea, and it left me with the idea for many years of my young adult life that nothing really matters. Nothing really matters. It leaves you with this immense weight of hopelessness, hopelessness that you can't get out from under. If you're here today and you're carrying around this weight, this weight of hopelessness, first I want you to know where much of this mindset comes from. And thank God I I know that now. Do you know that we have an enemy? And it's an enemy that will lie to you. He'll tell you all kinds of things to get you to walk away from God or not even begin to even serve God. He'll tell you that. If you are here today, I want you to know, and you're carrying this hopelessness, I want you to know that it is likely coming from the enemy. He'll lie to you. If the eyes of your heart haven't been enlightened to the God of the universe, You are prone to believe these lies. You're prone to believe what the enemy says about you. Paul says, you cannot even begin to fathom the hope that is in Christ. It's not an immense weight of hopelessness. It is now an immense weight of hope that we have. Paul prays in verse 18 for the Ephesians to be enlightened so they know the hope to which that God has called them to. The Christian life, folks, is centered around a posture of hope. Hope says that the present circumstances of your life, they don't get get the right to determine the meaning of your life. Hope says that no matter what the enemy says to you, it doesn't get the right to tell you that you're not good enough, that God doesn't care about you, that you can never be what God says you are. It's a lie from the enemy. If our hope is based on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we have a hope that goes beyond our circumstances. It can go beyond the lies of the enemy. It can go beyond what's happening in your world. Does this mean that our circumstances will always be good or that God will somehow change all the bad circumstances into good? Sometimes He does, but not always. Paul wrote another letter a group of Christians in, in, in Corinth and I'm, I'm going to I thought about taking this out Nathan but I decided not to <laughs> there was evidently trouble in the church at, at Corinth and I'm, I'm talking about how the cares of this life and what you believe about God how if, if, you're, if you're not careful if you believe the lies of the enemy you are left without hope So Paul writes this letter to this church in Corinth. There was evidently the trouble in the church, and it was caused by people who didn't believe in the very thing that God says we have hope in, the resurrection. They didn't believe in that. I think this was the Sadducees. Paul does what he does a lot. He gets brutally honest with these folks. His words to them are are even hard to read. I tell you, it's hard to read what Paul has to say to these people. He wants them to know that if they believe this stupid lie from the enemy, he wants them to know the impact of it if they don't believe in the hope of the resurrection. He tells them in 1 Corinthians 15 some hard truth. First he lays out the sequence of events here and he explains to them that he has preached to them exactly what he had received from God. I'm just going to give you the high-level view for the sake of time here. Jesus came to this earth, and this is what Paul was given, came to this earth, died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, and then was raised on the third day. All this, Paul says, was according to the scriptures. He's telling these people what he had received from God. Paul also gives them some names of people who actually saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. So this wasn't some fairy tale story. He said, look, there are people that are still around today that saw him. These were first-hand eyewitnesses, not just a few. Paul says it was over 500 people. So stick with me. We're still talking about hope. You guys okay so far, right? right. You know we're still talking about hope. He tells these folks directly that if they believe that there is no resurrection of, a, of, the, of the dead, they have a huge problem on their hands. Paul doesn't mince words. man hard to read this, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. He hits them with what I think is probably, he's showing them the most hopeless thing in the world right now, and he's going to, he's going to just describe, describe it to them. He says this to this church, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Man, your hope's gone. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, Paul says. Then also, and then he, go, he makes it even worse. You know those family and friends that you have that, that, that died in Christ? Do you know if you have no hope in the resurre- re- resurrection that they're lost? There's no hope. They're lost. Those who have fallen asleep, Paul says, are lost. And Paul then he ends it with all of this. And I'm like, wow, Paul, can you just, man, he's brutal. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. It's hard stuff, but I'm telling you the importance of having the hope that Paul talks about here. So we're going to jump back to Ephesians now, taking my side track. So When Paul is talking to the Ephesians about a hope that these followers of Christ have, it's a... It is a subject that was near and dear to him. He had written the the words that we read to the church at Corinth about eight years before he wrote this letter to to the church at Ephesus. In light of what we know about our hope, I want to go back and read this again. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. I'm telling you, folks, that you are an inheritance to God. This hope that the Ephesians have and that every believer, including you and I, has to be the forefront thing in our mind at all times. Verse 19, I'm going to speed it up just a little bit. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. I want to stop right there. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word power. I believe that the word power in our world has a negative slant to it most of the time. We live in a world where power is most often most often associated with uh, corruption and deceit. This is not the kind of power that Paul talks about here. Paul prays that these folks would recognize that they're not out there on their own. When they get down in the mouth and their, their our world seems to come crashing in around you, have you ever been there? Nothing is going the way that we'd like it to. I know that you've been there. Maybe you're there now. Our world is, diff- uh, is different than the Ephesians what they dealt with. But as I said a few minutes ago, we're not really, really not that much different than these folks. Paul believed that God would enlighten the eyes of their heart so that they see this great hope, that they would know the riches of his inheritance. If you don't know that you're an inheritance to God, man, you need to read your Bible more. It is my belief that we need to hear what Paul told these Ephesians because it lets us know that we also can continue to serve God under hard things, Our walk with Jesus is based on our trust in what God has said. I want to spend just a a very few minutes uh, on the resources that God has given to us. So let's look at the remaining words of Paul that Paul prays. He asks that God make the Ephesians aware of some critically important things. He wanted them to know about the hope that they have. And then verse 19 says, And he wanted them to know about his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Hold on. Look at what Paul just said. There is power that we need to know about, but not just any power. It's incomparable. Nothing can compare to it. Why does Paul say it, 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 or who does Paul say it's for? it's for us who believe. What kind of power is it? It's the same mighty strength that God used when he raised Christ from the dead. Wait a minute, what? Don't miss that next line. That power was also not, not only the, the power that not only raised Christ from the dead, but seated him in the heavenly realms. This is immensely important. I want to talk to you for just a minute, just, just a very few minutes. Is Paul saying that the same power that brought us our eternal hope and the resurrection of Christ, that we have the benefit of that power? I think He is. Paul explains that when God raised Jesus from the dead, set Him at His right hand, that God gave Him complete authority. uh, Mark mentioned in his call to worship this morning, I think it was in Colossians, he talks about this. Look at verse 21. He says, He gave Him authority over all things, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Paul has this story in his mind. He's referencing some parts of this story that's in his head. There is a cosmic battle. Do you know that there's a cosmic battle between God and Satan that has been going on since the beginning of a story in Genesis? Do you know that? Paul understands, and I'm going to quickly run through this because people get weird when you talk about this. (laughs) Paul understands that there's another realm, and it should not be weird to us. It's the spirit realm that is just as real as this physical world that we're in right now. The first thing we probably need to do is throw out all the silly images that we have of Satan. This guy in a red tight with a tail and a pitchfork and all that, this, that's, that's, that's not him. That's not him. We live in a world that primarily focuses on the physical, the five senses, what you can, t- what you can see, touch, hear, taste, and smell. But there's a spiritual realm that e- we either we don't know about it Or we don't understand it, or we don't believe that it exists. Paul had an understanding that there was more going on in our world than what we can see, taste, touch, hear, and smell. First, I want to tell you that even professing Christians, many people, even professing Christians, are going to look at you funny and say, Well, you know, I believe there's another spiritual dimension that's working in our world. They're going to be, Oh boy, this just got really weird. Do you know that God is a spirit? I hope you know that. Do you know who said that? Do you know who said that God was a spirit? Jesus. Pretty important. Paul uses some specific language that gives us clues to what God has put in his mind. He talks about the present age and the age to come. Present age was the age that he was living in and by the way that we're still living in. And it continues to the age that we're in right now. It, it, it is the present age, the age of sin and death. It's the world we live in until Jesus comes back and returns and makes, things, makes all things new. When Jesus came on the scene about 2,000 years ago, he ushered in the beginning of the kingdom of God. It certainly was not, didn't come in its fullness yet, but, and it won't until Jesus returns. Paul believes that the Ephesians, or you and I, don't have to live like slaves in this present world. We can follow a king who is reigning and who will reign in our lives if we will follow Him? In the midst of this broken world, Paul says we can live in, live in such a way that we show the world what Jesus is about. We can live to bring to bring glory to Him. So I'm going to run through this. I, I I said all that to say you know that we have an enemy in this world, and it is it is. Paul says later in chapter six. Uh, of Ephesians. It's not flesh and blood. And uh, he says that, it, that our, our, I'm just going to read it to you. It's, he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against whose schemes? The devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the, ru- the rulers, the, against the uh, authorities, against the powers of this dark world the spiritual forces of evil in the, in the heavenly realms. There's so much more, but we'll be going into that in week 12 of this series. And Nathan will be, will be giving you the full version of that. This is, folks, this is not a devil behind every bush. Paul knows that this cosmic spiritual battle takes place every day, whether we recognize it or not. Do you know that? It happens every day. You talk about losing hope. Just listen to what the enemy tells you. He also says this. That that's not the end of the story. That the forces of evil don't win. They don't win. They don't win. And they don't get the last word either. Because Jesus has been given all authority, not only in heaven, but also on earth. So listen to what Paul says tells the Ephesians in verses 22 and 23. God placed all things under his feet, talking about Christ, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. For who? For the church? you mean like us? Yes. The fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. We should certainly take take comfort in the fact that if you're following Christ, the schemes of the enemy are not going to be a surprise to you. I want to wrap this up by going back to where Paul started with prayer. Father, we... We recognize that we don't always see what you are doing in our world. Sometimes, Lord, we recognize that we're blinded by circumstances. Sometimes, Lord, <laughs> we're just not paying any attention. Lord, I, I, I pray today for these same things that Paul prayed for in the church. We most certainly need you to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know you better. We also need you to open our eyes so that we can know the hope to which we have been called.